0: Chapter four, verses one through nine. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagayim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lepidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh, Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun? And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon and his chariots and troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera. Oh, no, it jumped. I hate that. I should bring a Bible. Sorry. <laughs> uh, me and propaganda, right? For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And chapter 5. After uh, they had that story, there's another version of it. No. Guys. Oh, here we go. I got it. Woo! (laughs) Chapter 5. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Aboinam, on that day. That the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings. Give ear, O princes. To the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. The Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord. Even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. Thank
1: you. Amen. Let's give Joanna a hand clap. Thank you, Joanna. Good morning, everybody. Yeah, it's good to see you guys. Um, so here we have... Another story of the same cycle, Israel again has fallen yet again into this broken cycle. They've totally forgotten God, and they've forsaken God for idols, and now their life is falling apart. And again, they call out to God to save them, this time after 20 years. And again, God sends a deliverer. And I love this story. It's an amazing story. It's so amazing. It gets told twice Okay, so we get two perspectives on this story, chapter four and chapter five. And chapter four is a historical account, right, line by line. And then chapter five is more of a poetic song account. And so um, instead of reading all the way through both of those chapters, we're just going to kind of touch base in a few of those points. But those two different perspectives, history and poetry, reminded me as I was reading this of sports. Um, Because anybody play sports when you were growing up? Right. So when I was a kid, we used to play sports in, uh, you know, 80s kid. So we weren't, our parents weren't germaphobes. We would just, if we could find a patch of grass, even gravel, we would play tackle football. Anybody else? Like, I can't believe I played tackle football on gravel. It's just nuts. But we would, you know, because at the end of the day, it was just for the love of the game. And so as a kid, when you watched sports you watch them differently than maybe you do as you grow up. And I noticed this because recently I took my father to a Padres game. And while we're sitting there, it, you guys notice how people are kind of at Padres games? That kind of, or just, its I know it's our only team, right? <laughs> but, I mean, just any, like, professional sporting event, how people can get that kind of consumer mentality, that spectator mentality. And it's kind of, I get it, right? You paid money for those tickets, and you paid for overpriced popcorn, and you're sitting there, and you just want to be entertained, but there was this drunk guy next to me and my dad, and um, yeah, he, was, he was clearly, he clearly had a lot of beer, and um, he was like, just sitting there, and he's like, saying this stuff, I think I was actually feeling and thinking, but I would have never said, at least not how he did, he's just like, oh, come on, Somebody hit the ball. Like, it's just, everybody around him is kind of snickering and looking. And then finally, I'll, I'll never forget, he stood up. It was like the sixth inning or something. there's no-hitter at this point. He stood up, and he's like, boo, boring. <laughs> boring, it's just. And, of course, I would never say that. I would never do that. But in that moment, I'm sitting there, and I'm coming face-to-face as people around him are starting to get irritated and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, but that's kind of what we're all thinking <laughs> right now. Um, that's what's going on in my heart. And, I, and then it clicked with me, and I started thinking, when did I go from being somebody who enjoyed the sport and was watching in that way as, as somebody who plays sports to the spectator? I'm just sitting there. I'm not watching for the love of the game. I'm like sitting there with that entertain me attitude. You guys know what I'm talking about? like, Dude, when we were kids, I used to when we would play sports, you know, you inevitably are, you're playing, uh, we used to play basketball down at, uh, over, over by PB, and, you know, you'd lose a game, and you'd sit on the sideline, but why are you sitting on the sideline, you're, like, into every play, you know, everything that's going on, you're watching, you're waiting, you, you're cheering, you can't, oh, dude, you see that move, and you're watching, like, because you're wanting to learn to perfect your game, how to get that crossover and that fade, you know, oh, man. I want to learn to do that. I got to watch his footwork. And I'm going to play against that guy next. So I need to figure out his strengths and weaknesses. So you're totally in. Why? Because you're playing the game. And so you're totally into the game. And you watch it differently than when you're just a spectator. And there I am sitting by this obnoxious drunk guy realizing that I've changed. and I've gone from being a player to a spectator. And I'm like verbally journal or uh, mentally journaling like when did that happened? What, what changed in me? And are there areas of my life besides a Padres game where I'm doing that? Jackie Robinson has a quote, one of my favorite quotes. He says, life is not a spectator sport. If you're going to spend your whole life in the grandstand just watching what goes on, in my opinion, you're wasting your life. And in preparing for this sermon, I realized that this story deals with the same issue because in this story, there are people who are clearly on the sidelines. And then there are people who are involved and in the game despite overwhelming odds. And I want to pause and ask you as we start out, where are you at today in your life in the kingdom? Do you find yourself sitting on the sidelines? Or are you up in the bleachers, in the nosebleeds, the cheap seats, spectating or are you on the field are you viewing this life as a spectator or a player and uh i hope that if you discover that like me in some ways you'd become disengaged whether whether it's the fear that's disengaged you or apathy or maybe like me you've had injuries so you just don't play as much and your mentality changes there's good news for you and The good news is this, we'll start off with it. God wants to free you from whatever's holding you back. And God is calling you today to get into the game. So let's look at this story. We're going to do this way different than normal. We're going to look at the players on the team, all right? First four players. Let's start in chapter 4, verse 1. And after Ehud dies, the Israelites again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the cycle begins again, and the text introduces introduces us to four key players. The first one is Jabin. Everybody say Jabin. Jabin. That's an awesome name. The Israelites find themselves under the cruel reign of Jabin, the king of the Canaanites, for over 20 years. And this is the longest time of oppression they've had. This is the most difficult time of oppression they've had. And the reason why is because of Jabin's right-hand guy, Sisera. Everybody say Sisera. Sisera. Sisera is a jerk, okay? He's Jabin's muscle. He's the main agent of oppression, his commander. And Sisera has 900 iron chariots, right? These are the smart bombs of their day, right? These iron chariots were like, they're the drones of the day, right? And this oppression is worse than either of the two that came before it, Kushan, Reshethem, or Eglon, because it's cruel. And we don't catch a glimpse of how cruel until the end of the song. In the end of chapter 5, when the ladies in waiting and, and Sisera's mother are waiting back and Deborah's picturing them and they're sitting back and they're singing, where's the, where's the hoof beats? We're waiting for Sisera to come back with his men and they're going to have plenty of spoil from war and a womb or two for each man. A womb or two, right? Because history will bear out as you read through that Sisera, the reason it was cruel is historically these guys would murder and rape and pillage. They would kidnap Israelite women and other women under their oppression to be sex slaves. They were wicked. And it was 20 years of that kind of oppression. And so Israel cried out to the Lord, it says, and enter The people on God's team, right? Enter Deborah, a prophetess. Look at verse 4. She's a prophetess. And uh, notice she's not a dude. Right? Right? She's a prophetess. She's preaching and teaching the word of God for Israel. And we see her doing that in verse 6. And she's leading Israel in verse 4. She held court. And that's not like a queen's court. It's like a judge's court. So she's sitting there under this tree, and and people are coming to her, and she's deciding disputes. She's a wise counselor. She's a judge, and and it's this tree called the Tree of Deborah, and it's partway between Bethel and Ramah in this mountain pass. And the reason why they had to climb through the mountains to get up to Deborah is because there's so much oppression. They can't take the easy route along the valley because they're going to get kidnapped and put into hard slavery. Deborah is very different from any of the other judges we've seen so far, and from any of the other ones we will see, not just because she's a woman, but also because she led differently. She led from wisdom and character instead of just sheer might. Think about it. Othniel went to war. Ehud, left-handed ninja assassin. Okay. Right. Shamgar kills 600 Philistines with a farming tool. And here's Deborah. And she's leading with wisdom and grace and counsel. And she comes the closest to being a godly leader of the people because she's a judge who led beyond the battlefield. And I think the first thing I want to point out about Deborah is that she reminds us of a very important truth, and that is that God's chosen leader is not simply a rescuer, like all the other judges we see in this book, but he's also a ruler like Deborah. We tracking? Okay, So in that sense, Deborah's probably even, in many ways, the greatest pointer to Christ in the book of Judges, who Isaiah says can bear the government on his shoulders. He's called Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, establishing and upholding his kingdom with justice and righteousness. Jesus is Lord and Savior. Jesus is Rescuer and Ruler, right? And Deborah in this sense, points us to Jesus' ruler. But in another sense, she doesn't because she's not a rescuer. Okay? She's not the one who in God's strength is going to rescue Israel by fighting the enemies. And that could have kept her out of the game. That could have kept her on the sidelines, but it didn't. Watch what she does. Verse 6. So she sent for Barak. And she tells Barak God's plan. She tells him, Barak, you're going to take 10,000 men up to the top of Mount Tabor And you're going to fight against Sisera and his 900 iron chariots. And Barak is, though, is the one to whom God is going to give the victory over Sisera. In other words, the ruler is not going to be the rescuer, and the rescuer is not going to be the ruler. God wants to use them both together as a team. It's interesting because this is the only story in which you don't just have one judge. But God uses multiple people together as a team, which is why we have the sports analogy. <laughs> All right, and so here there's at least two. The story's not over yet. So Barack asked, uh, or Deborah asked Barack to go, and here's what Barack says He goes, If you go with me, I will go, but if you won't go with me, I will not go. Scared, Barack? <laughs> well, yeah, it's 900 chariots versus 10,000 men with spears. 900 chariots wins. Every time, hands down, they cut people down, slice through an army like butter. There's no chance that Israel has here when you just look at the numbers, right? And Barak is terrified, so he asked Deborah as God's representative to go, kind of like Joan of Arc, and lead them into battle. In verse 9, Deborah says, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you're going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Here's the deal. Barak has every reason not to go. 900 of them, right? And he still does in the face of overwhelming odds. And that's it's interesting because Barak is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, the the, the chapter of faith. And you say, oh, he looks kind of like a scaredy cat. But he's still mentioned in the hall of faith, in the hall of heroes in the Bible. And I think it's for two reasons. One, because Barack listens to God even when it's tough. And that, that shares this, uh, an important point with us today, and that is faith is not ignoring the difficulty. Faith means that you choose to trust God despite the difficulty. And I know we all have difficulties in our life that we're facing right now. Faith is you trusting God and seeing Him as greater than the difficulties you're facing. Right? And secondly, Barack. Is, is mentioned because he's humble. He's not honor-seeking. He finds out he's not going to get the credit for this. Sisera is going to be handed over to somebody else. The honor will be given to another, and then he's not even going to get to rule afterward. But he still goes. He still leads God's people into battle, and and because of that, Barak foreshadows this great deliverer who, in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing and humbled himself, and become obedient to death, even death on a cross, right, so Deborah is imaging Christ to us in her ways, Barak is in his ways, and now we get to the story, we know the sport, we're fighting evil against impossible odds, we know the players, you got Jabin and Sisera versus Deborah and Barak, you guys ready to watch the game, all right, cool, Atop Mount Tabor, 10,000 men stand ready in verse 10. And Barak is all charged up. He's probably doing his best brave heart speech, right? And Sisera is prepping his chariots in verse 12 and 13. And right in the middle, we get a commercial break. Verse 11, it says, And Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent near the battleground. Can we fast forward the commercials? (laughs) Thanks, God. That was awesome. Random little detail, but it's not meaningless. I love that the narrator who's writing Judges is is building the suspense. So remember that detail. It's going to come back around. On Mount Tabor, Barak goes into battle against Sisera. And Sisera seems to hold all the aces. But look at verses 15 and 16. But the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harosheth Haggoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. What? Just like that? That's such a short... Like it's this huge buildup. Verses and verses and verses. And then we get a battle sequence that's one and a half verses. Yeah, well... Yeah, I mean, you you guys can't identify with that. You ever watch a sporting event that's over before it's over? Or like you paid pay-per-view, right? And you invited all your friends over the house to watch the fight, and then it's round two, and you're like, what the heck? (laughs) Round one? All right, see you guys later. Enjoy the pizza. But here's what happened. See, maybe Barak's forces were no match for Cicero's, but Cicero's forces were no match for God. Cicero was so secure in his chariots, and now he's running from his chariot, and his troops are falling by the sword. And in chapter four, that's pretty much all we get. That's all we get about this battle sequence. But it's cool because in chapter five, we get the instant replay, right? We get the highlight reel. There's going to be the slow mo version. Okay, so let's go to chapter five real quick. And and just a brief note about this because this is really important. I love the fact that this story has two chapters, two perspectives. Chapter 4 is the historical account. Chapter 5 is a song, and it's more theological. When you read chapter 5, which I want to encourage you to do maybe later on today, it looks beneath the surface of history and shows us how God's hand was involved in it all, that God was doing all kinds of stuff. When you read chapter 5 or chapter 4, it's it's kind of like God is only named four times in chapter 4. In three of those, Deborah is talking to Barack, trying to get him to hope in God. That's it. But in chapter 5, God is everywhere. He's doing all kinds of stuff, right? And I think that's one of the things, a quick point. When we slow things down and we reflect and we start to look back and look under the surface, we might start to see God at work all over the place in our lives, right? And and, and let's look at chapter uh, 5, verse 1. God is the one who receives the praise. Deborah and Barak are singing God's praise because the princes or the chiefs that are leading Israel to war. Why is God receiving the praise for that? Because look at this. As they marched, God was on the march. And God shows his power in verse four through pouring rain. And God makes the earth and the mountains tremble in verse five as his people advance. We just sang about that. In fact, if you read through Josephus, anybody know Josephus, famous Jewish historian? He has a recounting of this tale. And he says, he says it this way, so I'll give you the little like play-by-play. Um, as Israel is advancing, rain and ice, and frozen rain and sleet are falling from the sky, but it's falling on their backs. And it's, the ice is slamming right into the face of Sisera's army. And just then, the river that they're by is overflowing, and now the ground is all muddy, and the chariots' wheels get stuck in the ground, in the mud, and now those chariots are useless. It goes from 900 chariots to 900 dudes shaking in their boots as 10,000 guys with spears are coming up on them. In fact, Josephus says, more guys died by the chariots and their own horses than died by the hands of Israelites that day. God did that, and imagine, imagine if Barack had said, nah, the odds are way in their favor. There's no way we can do this, but he trusted that God was bigger. God crushes the enemy, and it looked like Sisera's team was stacked. You guys remember on the playground when you used to play dodgeball, and you got to be captain and pick the team, and you're always like, I want Big John because that dude can throw. And I want fast Susie because she can dodge like nobody's business, right? And you stack your team, and you're like, we're going to kill him. That's how Sisera felt. <laughs> and he got his clock cleaned because he wasn't counting on God. They didn't account for God on the side of his people. Sisera stood no chance. And I want to ask you today, are you living like that's true? Because I know every one of us in this place in some way is facing insurmountable odds. We look at certain situations in our life and we see that the enemy is coming against us. There is an enemy. Amen? The Bible says the devil goes about like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. So be sober and be vigilant. That's what Peter said, right? We have an enemy and when you look at the world, And the evils of things like the shooting in Vegas and and the nuclear threats and the starvation and the brokenness, stuff that we tend to just kind of shut out because we can't handle it. It overwhelms our senses if we really engaged with it all. And then the stuff in our life, because we can barely deal with that, right? There's an enemy that's coming against us. And I know a lot of you have been facing some tough things today, but when the enemy comes for you, are you getting overwhelmed by the odds? Are you looking at the opposition? Or are you looking at your God? What's bigger in your eyes? If you're overwhelmed by fear and struggling today, maybe your God is too small. Maybe you need to lift your eyes up and see how great and powerful he is. Do you see that God is fighting for you? God is for us, Romans says. Who can be against us? Whatever you're facing today, God is bigger. Whatever you're facing today, God is bigger. Amen? Are you in the game or is something keeping you on the sideline? And chapter 5 tells us a really sad tale. In verses 13 through 23, which we won't read the whole thing, we find out, though, that not everybody got into the game. In fact, there were whole tribes that stayed back. In fact, it says that they could have been 40,000 people. But because they were afraid, because for whatever reason, they stayed out of the game. Only 10,000 were able to fight. The tribe of Reuben, verses 15 and 16, stayed with their sheep. Somebody's got to watch them. (laughs) The tribes of Gilead and Dan and Asher stayed home too. Why? Why? They'd been opposed too. They'd been oppressed. They'd been struggling under the same thing. Why did they choose to stay home instead of get in the game? Why'd they stay on the sidelines? I don't know. It doesn't say. Maybe it was the fear that Barack was feeling. Or maybe they'd been under oppression for so long that all the fight was out of them. They were just apathetic by this point. Have you ever been there? so overwhelmed by life you just kind of stop caring if that's where you're at today god has something for you they on they stood on the sidelines and verse 23 says something interesting verse 23 curses those who stayed away the spectators said you guys missed out there's a curse upon you And I think one of the reasons why is because they're looking from the perspective of history. But they're not looking from that deeper perspective, that theological perspective, seeing God at work in the details, behind the layers. And still, even though not everyone gets into the game, God fights and God wins. And there's this lesson for us today, and that is that God is going to win. God is fighting our battles and he will win. We find a blessing When we get in the game, when we put ourselves in, no matter the odds, no matter what's standing in our way, there's a blessing there, and there's a cursing when we, for whatever reason, stay on the sidelines. That's a hard truth. But that's what the Bible says. There's a good truth here, though, for those of us that choose to get in the game, and that is this. Even in the face of overwhelming odds, it's God's burden, it's our blessing. We get to participate in the greatest story of all time. And we're going to talk about that. I hope, I hope, if you have not been in the story of God, just shameless plug, I hope you will be there later on this month. The story of God will blow your mind and wreck your heart. It's going to be amazing. As we walk through the entire Bible and you start to see how God is at work through human history. Shameless plug. But I, I want to encourage you guys. God is at work. It's his, bless, his burden to bear. It's our blessing. It's not like God needs our help. He's going to win, but he allows us to help. We get to be there. How are you viewing life? It's one of our biggest issues is seeing life only through the historical lens and not seeing it through the theological lens. In our modern world, we often miss out on the many ways that God's hand is at work in our lives because we rarely pause and reflect and see his hand at work. But he allows us to do that, I love this quote from Brennan Manning. I'm just going to uh, share it with you in Abba's Child. This is kind of b- about that theological uh, viewpoint. It says, The Celtic chronicles tell of the wandering sailor monks of the Atlantic seeing the angels of God and hearing their songs as they rose and fell over the western islands. To the scientific person, they were only gulls and gannets, puffins, cormorants, and kittiwakes. But to the monks that lived in a world in which, everything with the, in which everything with the word of God to them, sorry, everything was the word of God to them, in which the tenderness of God was manifest in accidental signs, nocturnal communiques, and the ordinary stuff of our pedestrian lives. If the Father of Jesus monitors every sparrow that drops from the sky, if every hair that falls from our heads, perhaps it is not beneath his risen son to dabble in our daily lives. How is the kingdom of God breaking into your life? Are you aware of it? Do you take time to pause and see the many ways that God's spirit is at work in your life behind the ordinary pedestrian details? I want want to challenge you guys to do that. I want to challenge you to share, like we talked about last week, evidences of grace. You know how you find evidences of grace? You open your eyes and see where God's grace is at work all around you and in your life. How are you viewing this game called life? All right, so back to the story. And this is my favorite part, the ending of the story. I love this. Victory's almost complete. Barack just has to catch up with Sisera, who's on foot, and he's got to nail him. But something's going to happen. Somebody else is going to get to Sisera first. Somebody else will have already nailed him. Remember, <laughs> remember that random commercial break? Some of you know what I'm talking about. For those of you that don't, just wait. It's going to be amazing. Remember that commercial break where it talks about um, Heber, the Kenite, pitching his tent? You're like, thanks, God, for that useless information. Check out what happens. Sisera is fleeing on foot. He reaches the tent of Jael, which means safety, because Jabin and Heber are supposed to be allies, right? And here we meet Jael. Jael is one of God's star players. She's the real MVP, but he's been keeping her on the sidelines for this moment. Okay, now God brings Jael into the grave, and watch what happens. I love this. Um, She welcomes him in. She gives him a drink. He asks for water. She says, no, here's some warm milk, right? Go to sleep, sweetie. Poor little guy, right? Covers him up with a blanket, hides him in there. And then verse 21, but Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand, and she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went into the ground while he was laying fast asleep from weariness. And I love these next three words. So he died. <laughs> you know, in case you missed the part where his head was nailed to the ground. Isn't that awesome? It makes you wonder, while he was laying there sleeping, what was going through his head? I had to have one zinger. Just one. Okay. I'm such a dad. (laughs) So God uses Jael to end this reign of terror. And don't miss this. The method Jael uses is full of irony. Okay, because Jael is, is is part of a Bedouin culture, right? They're always migrating through the desert, setting up tents, taking down tents. And one of, in that culture, the patriarchal culture, one of the women's jobs was to set up the tents and, and take down the tents. So essentially, tent pegs and hammers were kind of like her household tools and appliances, right? So she's a pro at a tent peg and a hammer. And also in that day, it was it was like the worst thing in the world to die at the hand of a woman it was like especially humiliating a woman kills you like up in, i don't know when they would have that conversation <laughs> 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 and down in hell javen turned to sister and was like <laughs> but it's it's designed to make this this death of this wicked evil person even more devastating, right? And this is, this is the fulfillment of Deborah's prophecy in verse 9 when she says, uh, you'll, you're not going to receive the honor for this, Barak. A woman will. You know, Barak doesn't receive the honor. He doesn't take out Sisera, and neither does she. It's not Deborah's honor either. She's talking about Jael. Who is it? It's Jael. And this, I love this because this whole judge's cycle is framed around the actions of women. Deborah, yeah. Deborah leads under Sisera's oppression, even, even though they're hiding in the mountains, right? And she leads Israel with wisdom. And it's seen most horribly in how they treat Israel's women. And yet, Deborah's a leader. And Jael is the means through which this reign of, of rape and terror is ended. Super awesome, right? After making the lives of women hellish nightwa- nightmares, it's, it's two women that take him down. I love that. Think of the irony that the man who used women as objects is killed by a womanly object. Mm. I borrowed that from a commentary. I was like, I'm going to say that. That's good. (laughs) And when Barack passes Jael's tent, she promises to show him the man he's looking for. And I'm just imagining this picture. Like, Barack gets his sword out, and he's like, stay back, little lady. Walks in the tent, and oh, I guess you already took care of it for me. God uses women to do amazing things in this story. And God uses not one, not two, but three people, a team. And humanly speaking, the honor has been shared. But really, who does the honor go to? Because it was the Lord who spoke through and to Deborah, right? It was the Lord who went before Barak and ended his enemy for him. And it was the Lord who handed Sisera over to Jael in verse 9. So it's a fair conclusion at the end of this chapter in verse 23 to say, on that day, God, not Deborah, not Barak, not Jael, subdued Jabin the Canaanite king before the Israelites, and the land had rest for 40 years. See, God uses people, but God is ultimately the Savior. He's the rescuer and the ruler. He's the one who acts according to his will. He deserves the glory. So Galatians, when Paul says in Galatians 1, 4, and 5, he says, salvation is all of God's doing according to the will of God of our God and Father so it is him that should receive the glory and the honor forever and ever so what's the final score here what do we learn like deborah and barak and jael god is calling us today to get into the game and he doesn't need us but he loves to work with us and through us it's his burden it's our blessing to participate in god's work and here's the thing, we, we need you to get in the game today. This church, this city, this world needs you to get into the game. We need some baracks. We need some warriors who may even be reluctant at times. We need you in the game. Don't let the odds that are overwhelming get in your way. Don't, don't let your inability make you shrink back because God's ability is greater, Right? Don't be overwhelmed by the circumstances. Be overwhelmed with your God's power and glory, the one who makes the mountains shake, who overruns rivers, who fights our battles for us. Our responsibility is not to have our ability. Remember, we talked about that last week. It's our responsibility is our response to God's ability. And today, I want to make a special call to the women of New City that daughters of the king, our our moms and our sisters and our wives and our friends. We need you. We can't do this without you. We have amazing women at New City. Guys, say amen. Amen. (laughs) We have some amazing women. I'm so thankful for the way that our women love and teach and lead and serve and give, whether they're leading in worship or they're leading in the word creating art and culture, loving our kids, counseling our hearts. There's, I don't know if you've noticed it recently, but it seems like there's a little buzz in the air, like God, God, there's a resurgence of what God is doing in our women here in New City. God is activating them. And I want to encourage you, if you feel like God is leading you to step out in a ministry, we want to see that. We want to see you step into what God is doing. Your responsibility isn't to get it all figured out and be strong and awesome on your own. Your responsibility is your response to God's ability, amen? Amen. So we need some Deborahs to teach and prophesy. And we need some Deborahs to give people courage to move forward in their faith. We need some Deborahs to to bring wisdom to the table. We need some Deborahs to go with us into battle. And we need some Jaels, too, to seek justice. (laughs) Amen? We need some Giles to take risks and step out and do wild things for God. (laughs) Look at the New Testament. We need some some Junias to take the gospel in the new places. Amen? New places out there and new places in our hearts. The unreached people group in my heart that hasn't believed the gospel yet, I need you to come bring that gospel there. Amen? We need some Lydias to support the work of God with their business savvy. We need some... Priscilla's to teach the word of God more perfectly. We need some Marys to surrender their plans and magnify the Lord with their lives. We need some mothers like Lois and some grandmothers like Eunice to raise up a boy who one day will become a Timothy. We need you. We can't do this without you. New city would fall apart. There's no new city without the wonderful women that God has blessed us with. Amen. So question, are you on the field or are you on the sidelines today? What's keeping you out of the, day, the, the game? What, what's your why today? Whether it's in this church or, or outside of this church, just in life, what is, what is your why? What are the things that are keeping you back from engaging fully and getting in the game? Is it fear? Is it old wounds? Is it apathy? Are you just disengaged in life? No matter what your why is, from Deborah and Jael, we learn that you can get into the game because God is bigger than your whys, and he's calling you in because you're not alone. You're on a team because in the end, God is going to win, right? How do we know that? How do we know God's going to win in the end? And this is how I'll wrap it up because God always has a plan, and Jael isn't the only surprise player God brings in. Because a few centuries later, there's a similar situation. Israel, again, is in captivity to Rome. Cruel oppressors. Similar situation. They're crying out, we need a rescuer, we need a ruler, we need a deliverer. But it wasn't just Israel who needed saving. Because Rome needed saving too. Right? Say, wait, they're the cruel oppressors. Yeah, but they were just as captive. All of humanity, the Bible says, was captive. To the cruel, evil one who, like Sisera, held his captive in sin. And, you know, have you guys heard of Stockholm Syndrome? You know what that is, right? Start to identify with your captors. Start to work out their agenda for them. That's what happened with all of us as humanity. We'd become the oppressors. We had caused wars and starvation and oppression. We are systemically part of the problem. Right? You hear that conversation going on today like about race, right? And Just like, oh, well, I'm not a racist. Yeah, but there's a systemic racism going on. Are you part of the problem or the solution? In that same way, there's systemic evil going on all over the world. Sure, maybe you're not a sexist but or a xenophobe or, or whatever. Sure, maybe you never personally starved somebody to death and kept them in your basement. But there are people in other continents that are starving to death. And we're all part of this same system. And God has called us to take dominion over this world and bring his kingdom here. What are we doing? Are we so overwhelmed with the evil in the world that we've just disengaged? We are part of the problem. The evil out there is the evil right here in my heart. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The the New Testament reminds us of a difficult truth that we've been playing on the wrong team. We've all, in our own ways, gone to battle in Sister's armies. So what's our hope? I'm going to read this passage, Galatians 4. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born a woman born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons because you are sons god has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying abba father so you are no longer a slave but a son and if a son then an heir through god see that's the gospel jesus was the real mvp right jesus like jael was god's sub and and he came in and he did something for us that no longer are we slaves, but we're sons. We're no longer captives. We're kids of the king. Why? Because God sent forth his son to redeem us. And like Deborah, Jesus is the perfect ruler, even better than she was. And like Barak, Jesus is the perfect rescuer, even better than he was. And like Jael, Jesus is going to nail his enemies to the ground, but he does it in an unexpected way. Because Jesus turns the tables and he takes the nail that we deserved. Jesus on the cross, instead of us being nailed to the ground, he was nailed to the cross. Instead of us being slaves anymore, he gave us his freedom and took on our captivity and our brokenness. Amen? That's the good news of the gospel. And because of that, God has gotten us on the right team. Not, for, not, not so we can take pride in it and be like, yeah, It's our doing. No, it's not our doing. It's all grace. It's all grace. But God is calling us now to get in the game. How? Just look at the world around you. You walk outside these doors today. What is not the way it's supposed to be? Everything, right? Everything. Look at the news. Look at the world around you. What If the kingdom of God was fully here right now and Jesus was reigning as king, Right now, here, what would be different? Now go put your hands to it. What's the one thing that tugs at your heart the most out of that? And you say, oh man, it's too big, that's too hard. Maybe your God is too small. But God is calling us to get in the game. And there's some practical ways, too, for us here at the church we can do this, whether it's serving and mentoring kids at Roosevelt, 50 of the kids this year on roll were, were homeless. 80% are below the poverty line here at the school, and they're asking us to come and mentor them. What school asks a church to do that? What an opportunity. City Heights missional community got going, and, and, and they did the World Cup, and they had kids, and... Um, refugees from all over the world had their teams playing soccer together. And I just got to hear the good report last night with Scott and Christina. They threw that together. Awesome. And somebody came to Christ because of a relationship that they made at that event. A a Syrian refugee who was here helping coach a team formed another relationship with another coach who was a Christian. And after a few weeks, he's become a Christian too and was baptized recently. It's amazing. That's Yeah. And we've got gospel communities on mission all over the city doing similar things. And if there's not one in your neighborhood, start one, right? Walk out your door and walk across the hall or walk across the street. Go on mission to meet a neighbor, to to meet somebody, and bring them from death to life as the Holy Spirit moves through you. Amen? Get in the game. What's holding you back? There's a story I love. Uh, you guys know the story of Elizabeth Elliot? Elizabeth and Jim Elliot had gone to Ecuador to be missionaries, and there was this tribe, the Wadani tribe, and, and this tribe had a ton of death going on. 60% of the deaths in this tribe were murder-related. They killed each other like crazy because they had no, no moral compass about death. And so Jim and Jim Elliott, some other missionaries and his wife, Elizabeth, they go in there and five of them are murdered at the tip of the spear by this tribe. If anybody had a reason to say, "Whoa, I'm done. I'm calling it quits. Elizabeth Elliott could have. But guess what? She stayed. And she learned the language. And she brought the gospel to them. And that entire tribe converted. And the death rates plummeted and the culture of an entire people group was shifted because somebody risked it all to stay. Now I want to ask you guys, what what is God calling you to do? What's he calling you to risk? What's holding you back? Is it fear? The gospel freezes from our fear. The greatest fear we have is death. Jesus conquered death. What are we afraid of? Is it weakness? You don't have the strength? It's his burden. He's going to let carry it for you. You just got to participate. It's your blessing to participate. Maybe it's old wounds that you're carrying around still. The gospel says he was wounded for our healing. And the good news of the gospel is today you can get off the sideline, right? Don't let your wounds keep you on the sideline for too long. Jesus is your healing. Lean into him and get back into the game. We're a team and we need you. Amen? God's calling you to get in the game. Let's, some closing thoughts I threw up here for you to meditate on as we sing and as we take communion and pray. Three questions. What specifically is God calling you to do? How is God calling you to get into the game? I, I just want to say this. Our church needs you. There are people, and I don't mean like corporately, our, our church entity, our 501c3 needs you. you know, and that's, I mean, there are people sitting in this room right now that hell has been unleashed in their lives. There are people in this congregation right now that are facing insurmountable odds and don't know where to turn and don't know where to go. And they need you. We need one another. We're a team, right? I want to encourage you over this time to pray. If you need help to come down and receive prayer, and if you don't need help, I want to encourage you to pray, Lord, who would you have me pray for and build a relationship with that might need you? They might need a touch. They might need somebody to come and encourage them, like Deborah encouraged Barack to move forward in the faith. All right? So we're going to enter into a time of prayer and, and singing and communion. What's God calling you to do? What's keeping you on the sideline? What's getting in your way? And how does the gospel free you from that and get you into the game? Let's pray. Father... um. Thank you that the good news is good news for all of us. That we've all been set free, that we are equal at the foot of the cross, that we are loved. Thank you that you're moving in this church right now and speaking to hearts. Beyond what any person could do, standing up here and working their words out in a certain order, Lord, you know our hearts and you are moving deep within to call us Maybe some of us have had callings for a long time to move forward in certain ways to minister to friends or neighbors or broken parts of society or to minister in the word, to start a group. You know what you've been calling us to do and you know what's been getting in the way. There's so many of us that are afraid or wounded or just beat down by life. And We tried before and we did it that one time and it didn't work out the way we planned so We're just in a broken cycle again and we're sitting on the sidelines and Father, I pray you would free us from that today. Free us from whatever's keeping us on the sidelines. Call us, give us boldness, give us courage, give us faith in you, the God who is greater than anything that we're facing to move forward and get in the game. We love you, we surrender our lives to you again. Have your way in Jesus' name, amen.